Hello and welcome to season two of What I Did Next from ANT Media. I'm Malak Fuad, your host. What I Did Next revolves around people's personal and professional crossroads and looks at those trajectories from key pivot points. My guests are multilingual, multicultural with roots in the Middle East. They're engaged, curious and passionate about knowledge and strive to make a difference in the world. Today I'm delighted to welcome journalist Max Roden back to the show. Max is the current Southeast Asia Bureau Chief for The Economist magazine and is based in New Delhi. He began his career in Cairo as a stringer for a number of international publications and has covered every major event affecting the region from the late 1980s onwards. From 2000 to 2015, he was The Economist's man in the Middle East. In 2010, Max predicted the seismic changes that were to come in Egypt in January 2011. His prophetic article, published just six months before the start of the Arab Spring, shows how deeply ingrained his knowledge of the region is and how attuned he is to the underlying currents running through it. Having been raised from the age of two years old in Egypt, Max is not your usual expat. His wife is Egyptian and he has deep roots in the country. For me, apart from his interesting life journey, Max is the author of one of my favorite books, Cairo, the City Victorious. Let's begin the show by finding out who Max would include in his ideal dinner party. That's, it's, it's an extraordinarily complicated question because my mind just goes right back through the depths of history. Um, and it's, it's, as soon as I start thinking of, the, of things, I think, my God, it's complicated. I'd love to sit down to dinner with Cleopatra. But what language would we speak? Then I'd need a translator, you know, so who would I get? But I think, you know, Cleopatra would be one of the, 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 the tippity top. What would you want to ask her? What would be your, what, what makes it, a, what are you curious about her? Well, I think, you know, the, just for one thing, physical aspect, you know, she's described as a great beauty, but then some of the actual, you know, surviving pictures of Cleopatra, she doesn't look so hot. I'd like to know what she actually looked like, you know. She's supposed to be this great lover. I mean, you know, what, what is she actually like? Um, so, and I thought, also think she's an extraordinary person. I mean, you know, she apparently herself spoke seven languages, um, you know, a great queen of Egypt, um, and lived at an absolutely amazing time, you know, a time of real high drama. What a, what a life. Uh, so I think she would be a lot of fun. Um, and she was supposed to have a great sense of humor. Um, so Cleopatra is definitely up there. Yeah. Fantastic. Another person is my own great-grandfather, uh, who was a... Um, ser- a, a public servant in the British administration in India. And I'm just interested because I've been li- living in India. I have some of his diaries. And um, he traveled all over India and was in this country for 40 years. And they're just, I- I've discovered so many gaps. Um, and I, there are a lot of questions that I'd want to ask uh, about things that he did. Um, he was in India, for example, as a British official at a time when the British army massacred a whole bunch of people um, in the next town from where he was stationed. Um, and there's no mention of that. I just wonder, what did he, what did he think of that? Uh, um, uh, he was actually an interesting character because he, he started off being a typical colonial official and then ended up being uh, very much against the, the British presence in India and actually ended up turning into a socialist, quite leftist person when he retired and went back to England. That's super interesting because the the sort of the, you know, the, the, the official history, if you like, of the Raj is always very, you know, the, the British side of it is always t- talking up the, 
you know the 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 brilliant um, uh, British influence and what they've what they've done in India, and you don't really hear these stories of individuals who you know turn against it. It's very rare to hear the uh, you know a Brit turning against the system, having been in it. You don't hear many stories like that at yeah. all. Um, no, it's it's rare, and I mean he did, he did it privately afterwards, you know, uh, uh, but um, and he you know was a was a a perfectly good public servant all his career but then after his career was over he got he got um, uh, he sort of made known some of his views right um so that's another interesting person yeah. i think one another person i would like to have uh, at dinner is gamal abdel nasser uh because i'd like to tell him don't do it gamal you know <laughs> if, I, if he was still if i was had dinner with him while he was still alive don't do a lot of things that he did you know i think he made some terrible mistakes he did some, you know, some some creditable things, but other things he did were really bad. Um, and I would like to warn him, you know, don't do these things. Yeah, you know, his 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 memory is still uh, intact. You know, people still yes. ha- consider him the big hero. There's been no revision of of uh, of the of that period yet. Yes, I don't know. I mean, people have strong opinions about about Nasser, but you know, I I, I would tell him before before we had our first course of dinner, I would tell them, "Don't do it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. I, I mean, there's there would be a lot to talk about with him for sure. Who else would you include? Uh, so those are those are warnings. Um, I, I think in terms of people who were just great, you know, conversationalists with with an extraordinary amount of travel, another would be Ibn Battuta, uh, you know, who. What an extraordinary life to have traveled to all of these places. And his, his, his book uh, and his writings, which he didn't actually write himself, they were recorded by someone else. You get a lot of uh, kind of a bit of exaggeration. Uh, uh, um, you know, there's a, a lot of things are skimped over or written with a great deal of kind of, uh, you know, exaggerate, you, know, uh, um, you know, just for, for the poetic size, side of it. But I think it'd be really interesting to actually hear from Ibn Patuta himself you know, who traveled to China, for example, you know, uh, in the, in the, the 13th, 14th century, um, you know, who traveled to Russia, who traveled to Africa at that time. Um, if you wanted to know what the world was like, you know, in the Middle Ages or something like that, what better person to talk to than uh, Ibn Battuta? Yeah, so he was a pioneer, for sure, definitely a pioneer in his time, absolutely. The first travel writer. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think also it would be nice to have my own wife actually uh, uh, at a dinner party like that because she'd enjoy it as much as I would. It would be rather a shame to steal all this uh, <laughs> you know, chance to have people for myself and uh, also to, uh, you know, to make good conversation. It's always good to have someone who's close to you as well as people you don't know. That's right. So that would be my, my fifth person. Yeah, interesting. It's a very nice mix. Now we turn to the books, music and films that inform Max's cultural world and give us a glimpse into what inspires him. Well, for book, I mean, it's it's it is too difficult to choose. So I I am forced to fall back on uh, Tintin, Tintin, Um, you know, the French cartoon character, actually Belgian, uh, because I don't think there's ever there's any character that I got so uh, absorbed into. Of course, this was as a kid, as a child. Um, and um, I read those books again and again and again. I don't think they've, they've, they've provided, no other book has provided more pleasure. Uh, I know them all backwards and forwards. I read them in English and French, um, and they traveled everywhere with me. I have some copies of his books that uh, are date from my childhood as well. 
And it's not just that, but also actually, oddly enough, during my life, without having you know, chosen anything, you know, I ended up being a reporter. At one stage, now I've gone gray, at one stage I had blonde hair that stuck in a tuft up at the top. I even looked like, looked like a Tintin. Uh, I never had a little white dog. You didn't have a Milou. No, I never had Milou. But it's very strange how many things that have happened in my life were actually already in those books. And even things that have happened you know, in gener general life. I mean, you know, bombs exploding on airplanes, for example. I don't think that had happened in 1920s or 30s when, when, when that was written. And also, a lot of his characters are just very memorable and quite realistic in a way. I mean, you know, and a lot of the little cameo people. I mean, some of his, you know, Italians are really Italian. And when I've been to Italy, I found out, yeah, these people are like that in Italy. Uh, you know, it's quite, quite extraordinary. Um, and he characterized places in, in ways that, that are um, kind of amazing, considering that Hergé, who wrote, wrote the Tintin books, he actually didn't travel that much. He got a lot from newspapers and so on. So I think it was, it was just influential both in terms of um, you know, the life that I've led and uh, as, a, as a kind of a hero character, I think Tintin was very good. He's always very moral. You know, he, he's a good moral example. I mean, he's a little bit of a colonialist, imperialist prig, you know, in some ways, you know. And, you know, there are, of course, big questions hang over Hergé himself, who uh, it turns out was a kind of a, a fascist sympathizer. So we have to be slightly wary. But I think his heart was in general in the right place. And um, those books are also, they're wonderful for their kind of raciness. I mean, you know, uh, um, it's amazing technically how, how uh, brilliant those books are, not just in terms of the drawings, but the fact that virtually every page ends with a cliffhanger at the bottom of the page, and every double page ends with a bigger cliffhanger, and so on and so forth. I mean, they're just brilliantly constructed. So Tintin is my, is my, fa my father's favorite. And, uh, you know, he, used, he grew up reading them, so he gave them to me. And then he gave them to my boys as well. And as you said, I mean, the, the, the whole colonial thing nowadays would, uh, the woke movement would have a big issue with him, I think. But, but I think he's, he's a lot of fun and you have to take him on face value. You know, he, 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 he was writing in a particular time and place. And, you know, I don't think that's, um, that's uh, you know, taken into account anymore, you know. But I think it's brilliant. Yep. And I like the fact that you went for something that's, from your childhood. I think that's really very sweet, actually. I like that. Thank you. <laughs> Next, we have the... Uh, do you want to talk about a movie you like or a, a film or even a TV series? I, I find it quite difficult, actually. That's, that's almost even more difficult than, 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 than a book. Um, because the films are so radically... You know, there's such a, such a possible contrast of worlds. Something I really liked, enjoyed recently was, was Le Bureau, uh, a, a French uh, television serial. Um, which is sort of set partly in Paris, partly in the Middle East. Um, and uh, I, I found that it was somehow very resonant. It was actually just really well done. The characters were quite believable. Um, some of the tension was very real. It's a spy story. Um, and uh, I'm not a spy. I don't know, if, know anything about spies. But it had a wonderfully racy plot. Um, and I thought that the sort of love story at its heart was somehow very, very uh, touching. And the fact that it has to be covered up and can't be sort of, um, it's a love story that has to be hidden from everyone else for years and years. And it's also very tragic, it's quite painful. Um, so I thought that that was a really very brilliant um, series and it, it did go on I think for four or five seasons. So it kept me entertained partly during uh, lockdown 
uh, under COVID. So I was particularly appreciative. So, I'll look yeah, it up. That, I haven't heard something. of it, but it sounds really interesting. I love those sorts of uh, dramas. Sounds good. Yeah. And music, Max? What, what kind of music do you go for? This is another cat- catastrophe because I'm extremely eclectic. Um, and in some ways, I, I think I, I'm going to give a choice that's a bit weird, which is not so much a piece of music, but a program, which is Iza'at Umukulsum in Cairo, uh, which I don't know if it's still on, but forever. It was on AM radio, uh, a program that went on from five o'clock in the afternoon until 10 o'clock at night, always opened with an Umukulsum song, which usually goes on for you know, <laughs> half an hour, a good, an hour, a good while, yeah. and then en- ended with an Umukulsum song. And in the middle was just a bunch of classics, you know, sort of from the 1940s, 50s, 60s. And the thing is that this radio station was, for many, many years, it was what was listened to by every single person in Cairo, virtually. Uh, every shop had the same radio station on. And so when, you, when you'd walk through the streets of Cairo, you'd, you could actually just follow the same song uh, from, from, you know, down the street from one open shop to the next to the next and get into a taxi, he'd be listening to the same thing, get out, hear it again on the street. So, I mean, uh, that, that radio program has the sound of, you know, a particular Egypt uh, that will always stay with me. Um, and can't really be replicated because I no longer have that radio station. I don't know what they've played, but I, I think it's uh, it's quite wonderful in terms of the sort of atmospherics. Um, it's very nostalgic, um, and I think it's nostalgic even for those who are in Egypt because now wherever you go, you you tend to hear the Quran. You know, you you don't see you don't hear music as much as you did before. Um, so I think there's a big sense of nostalgia uh, for definitely for Omar Kalsum. And for that sort of um, that atmosphere of 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 music wherever you go. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's it was just something enveloping. It was yeah. just part of the kind of it's just like the weather, sort of part of the warmth or the smell of orange blossom or something. It was just kind of all over all the time. When we spoke originally, you had mentioned this fabulous story of being in the states for college, your first year. And then suddenly seeing a, a ship to Egypt and you, you felt like you had to go back. There are two main phases in my whole time in Egypt. The first is the involuntary phase. Um, and the second is the voluntary phase. The involuntary phase happened because I was a kid. I mean, I was basically two years old. Um, my, my parents, my mother's British, my father's American. They met uh, when uh, my dad was at the University of Virginia doing his PhD. And um, he got a first job. A first job offer uh, from, uh, he went to an interview, I think in Washington, and uh, he was an Eng- English professor. I mean, he was, a, he was a, English literature was his thing. And uh, the story that he told afterwards was that he, he was given a job, first job, uh, just after his doctorate, and um, was very happy about it, um, but didn't, didn't, and thought that he was going to the American University of Beirut. And then it turned out to be Cairo instead of Beirut, and he was sort of puzzled by it. So it could easily have been, been, uh, been Beirut. So he, he misread um, the, let, the last letter in the... He the misread fever. the letter. And it's, it's not because he didn't want to go to Cairo. He just thought some exotic place in the Middle East, actually. So um, he was up for adventure, I think. Both my parents were quite adventurous types, actually. My parents went off to Egypt in 1964. Uh, I was two years old. That was the year when uh, the, the, the high dam uh, first uh, uh, stopped the Nile. 
Um, so the first year of no flood in Egypt, actually. The first memories I have are all in Egypt because, you know, I don't remember anything younger than two years old. But I certainly have memories of, of my, you know, three, four years, five years old. Um, we lived in, in Maidi, um, and I can remember a lot of things. Uh, I can remember our, 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 our cook um, trying to heat up his shibshib in the oven and melting them in the oven. That was an exciting Why was exciting he heating moment. them up? Why... Why was he heating a ship? It was, it was it was winter and it was cold. He oh, wanted I see. warm. <laughs> um, he wanted warm toes. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, so we, we we lived in Egypt at that time uh, as a, and I was a kid and I went to my first school was actually in Zamalek. I went to the uh, the Franciscan uh, in Zamalek. Um, Still there. It was a nun, it was a nuns school at the time and they yeah. were very strict and slightly mean. Um, but um, in the 67 war, um, most foreigners living in Egypt were advised to leave and actually the American university was closed. So we were sort of out of Egypt and stayed away from Egypt for four years. My parents lived in, in America for four years. My father got a temporary job at the University of Michigan. Um, and then we came back to Egypt in 1971. Um, so I was actually a, sort of, you know, a, a, from ages of nine to 14, I was in Cairo again. Which are quite formative years, aren't they? The, the years are yes. very important Oh yeah, very years. much so. Um, you know, it was a rather nice time. I remember it as a delightful time in my life. I mean, we, we had a very big villa in, in Maidi uh, uh, with a giant garden. We had 12 mango trees, I think. It was really very nice. But also at that age, uh, with, I had some adventurous friends, even though I was quite young, uh, but we did a lot of exploring, actually. We used to take the, what was then the, the metro, the Babalouk metro. It's now part of the Cairo metro system, but at the time it was just an electric train. We'd often go into town, uh, cost two and a half piastres to take the train into Cairo, and uh, then go to the movies, uh, all the big cinemas downtown. That was, well, that was the kind of fun thing to do every, every weekend. Um, and that was, a, that was a great time, actually. So then you went off to boarding school in the States... So, yeah, I left to boarding school in the States when I was 14. And then I left boarding school a year early um, and then started university in the U.S. Um, uh, I was at Wesleyan University. Um, but unfortunately, partly because I'd gone there too early, I really didn't know what I was doing. It was a very liberally liberal arts college, and I had absolutely no idea what I was doing there. And as a result, I sort of flunked out uh, of the university um, and uh, found myself kind of washed up uh, with not much to do. Um, did that worry you? Did choice. that worry you, Max, or or were you were you not very fussed about that? Well, I mean, basically, I was pretty stupid. We were all pretty stupid at that age, I think. <laughs> you know, I was pretty <laughs> silly. Um, I wasn't as, as fussed as one might have thought. I didn't think it was such a disaster. I just because I didn't actually know what I wanted to do next anyway, um, and I actually felt very nostalgic for Egypt. Um, I wasn't, but I just wasn't sure what to do. I thought, shall I stay in America? And it's also, one has to, one forgets, you know, at the time, my parents were a little bit odd. They were odd people. Um, and they were very hands-off parents. Um, and in a way that even, you know, at the, given at, that at the time there was no internet, uh, to, to make it, have a telephone call with someone meant having to book a telephone call, go to a telephone office uh, long distance from Egypt. It was really quite com complicated and difficult. Um, and they were in Egypt, I was in America, um, but still they were terribly hands-off. And, um, you know, I was really left to my own devices. Um, and I, I had just a little bit of money and uh, I was trying to decide what shall I do with myself. I was in New York City at the time. 
Um, uh, I had a girlfriend in New York City, and I tried to do you know anything I could to make some money. I was trying to decide what to do, and one day I actually went to the uh, to Brooklyn Heights in New York, which overlooks the harbor. At the time, there were actually still functioning docks down below the promenade in Brooklyn Heights. I don't think they're functioning any, any longer. I think it's all you know parks and entertainment and stuff like that. But at the time, there were still docks, um, and I was uh, I, I, I mean uh, I, I was a uh, uh, looking down towards the, the docks, and there was a ship down there onto which were being loaded, a kind of freighter, there onto which were being loaded by cranes, these big red buses. And at the time, there was a program, uh, this was shortly after Camp David, a few years later, and there was a lot of U.S. aid going to Egypt, billions of dollars of aid, and one of the things that was going to Egypt was these buses. Uh, they were terrible buses, they were awful buses. Um, and uh, they were so bad and so noisy that they used to call them Sot Amrika in, in Cairo, as this kind of like rattle of these really bad American-made buses. Um, but I was wondering, I couldn't see quite well enough from the distance that I was at, uh, standing on the promenade, looking down, are, are these red buses going to Egypt? And I could see that the name of the ship was written down uh, there on the, 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 the back of the, the boat. And so I took, pulled my glasses out of the pocket of the jacket that I was wearing, the breast pocket, uh, to kind of use my glasses as a kind of like, you know, magnifier, telescope thing. And indeed, those, the ship was going to Alexandria. It was an Egyptian ship going to Alexandria. And there were these, these buses going to Alexandria. The problem was that as I pulled my glasses out of the pocket, I, I just, I'd forgotten that I had my little roll of like $100 bills in my pocket. And as I pulled the glasses out, my dollar bills got thrown up into the air and it was a very windy day, and the wind just carried this money that I could watch. I could just see scudding over the, the, the highway and over the docks and down towards the water, you know, like, like a, a half a kilometer away. Is that all the money yeah, you had? Yeah, that was all the money I had. All that I had otherwise was a TWA ticket to Cairo. <laughs> so I had no choice. It I had to destiny, go to It was destiny, Max. To, it was destiny for you to come back. It was destiny, yeah. It was destiny, yeah. So I had to go back to Cairo. And I don't regret that. Yeah, that's a pretty big pivot, right, for you. That changed yeah. the, your, your trajectory completely. Yeah, it was the hand of God. But you see, I mentioned Tintin, I think, as my, one of my favorite books. But that scene with the money going across the docks, I mean, I don't think it's actually in a Tintin book, but it belongs in, in a Tintin book because it's sort of exactly the kind and of And that would be on the double page <laughs> ending, right? It wouldn't be the first page. Exactly. There, there goes the money. So what, what happened then? So you came back to Cairo, you enrolled at AUC. Yeah, I enrolled at AUC uh, because I didn't know what else to do. And also, since my father was a professor at AUC, I mean, poor AUC, because he was a professor there, one of the privileges of being a professor there was that um, your children could go to the university for free. So instead of paying for a lot of money to send me to university in, in the U.S., I could go to AUC for free. And, but because I could do the classes at AUC for free, there was no real pressure to graduate. Uh, and so this is why I say poor AUC, because <laughs> I spent six, six or seven years um, just studying whatever I wanted and taking every class that I found interesting at AUC. Um, and uh, they finally got rid of me after seven years and, and, and basically said, get out of here. Here's a degree. Um, you know, we've had enough of you. And what degree did you get in the end? I got a degree in, in it was in uh, history, in Islamic history, uh, which was a very good subject at AUC. I mean, it was really world class. It's still very strong, actually. Yeah, it's still quite strong. And did you do any formal Arabic uh, language classes? 
Or are you just... I did, yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I have to say I was never very serious about it. Um, and it's partly my fault, but uh, also things have changed a lot. Um, uh, the, the, at the time, Arabic was taught very badly, I have to say. It was just really bad. Um, there was always a, there was a, a very good program at AUC called Kaza, but that was for um, American graduate students. But the actual Arabic language courses were just bad, and the style of teaching was bad. I mean, you, you were made to sort of drum, dr grammar was drummed into you, and it seemed to have no, uh, very little relevance to uh, kind of spoken life of, of, of Egypt. And when you were AUC, were you also uh, beginning to write for different publications, or did that come later? Yeah, well, one of the privileges of, of not really having to take university terribly seriously and being able to take, you know, just one class per semester or two if I wanted, is that I had lots of time to do other things. And so, yeah, almost from the very first year as at AUC, I was also working at the same time. And I started working as a journalist uh, almost immediately. Um, I did other, other jobs too. I worked as a tour guide. I made maps at one stage, um, various other things. So I always had work and supported myself actually through university, all those university years. We'll continue our conversation with Max right after this short break. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our bonus episodes, available exclusively for subscribers. On each bonus episode, I take a deeper dive into my guests' industries, and I share some extra parts from our conversation. For example, actor and comedian Rami Youssef told me about his thoughts on cancel culture, and ex-anchor and now author Hala Gorani told me her thoughts on the future of journalism. All of these great stories are only available on our bonus episodes, so subscribe now to unlock this amazing extra content. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts by clicking the subscribe button or on our website and get instant access to all our bonus episodes with a two-week free trial. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. You're listening to What I Did Next in our episode with Max Rodenbeck. What drew you to journalism? What was it about journalism that you liked? Did it, was it that you had a facility with language or was there a curiosity about where you were living? What was it in particular that made you gravitate towards, towards that? Well, aside from reading Tintin and being, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> wanting to, being a young reporter, um, it was just, it was a, it was a natural thing. Um, I come from a quite literary family. We I always read lots and lots and lots of books. Um, uh, I, I always found a facility with writing since I was a, a, a kid um, all through all my years in school and high school. It was, it was just the thing that I did was to write. Um, and uh, also, the thing about journalism is that it's a, it's a license to be curious. I've always been a very curious person, curious about other people, curious about other things. And I'm also curious in a slightly um, un, undisciplined way. Um, I'm not curious about one thing. I'm curious about a lot of things. Um, and so uh, journalism is a good excuse. You're allowed to be curious. In fact, that's what, you're, that's what you get paid to, to be. So you're a generalist in a way. You're, you're, you'd consider yes. yourself a generalist. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, I studied history and I'm interested in history. And I also think of myself as a sort of historian. That's what kind of journalists are. You know, as they say, it's the first draft of history. Um, uh, and I'm interested in the first draft and the second draft and so on. But, um, you know, I'm, I've always been curious about the world. Also, having grown up in Egypt 
during 67 war, I was in Egypt during the 73 war, um, you know, we listened to the BBC every day. Um, I followed the news every day. Even when I was a kid, um, there were always dramatic events happening around us. Um, you know, it was quite a, quite a dramatic time. You know, shortly after I came back to Egypt from America, there was the assassination of, of, of uh, Anwar Sadat. Um, and, uh, you know, events were very kind of, you know, they, they imposed themselves in a way on our lives and the way we thought um, at that time, perhaps more, more than now. Uh, and so I was very, very, you know, always, without thinking about it, this was what was likely to happen to me. So, you know, I started off as a journalist with local publications in Egypt. Um, and then eventually, after many years, I started doing more, you know, uh, kind of international journalism. And then uh, eventually you became the, uh, the, the economist uh, correspondent covering Egypt and, the, and North Africa, is that correct? Well, first, let's see. I, I mean, I, 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 at first I was a, uh, what they call a stringer, you know, yeah. uh, not a paid staff person. At the time, there was no staff correspondent for Egypt for The Economist. And so I became the person who covered The Economist for Egypt as a stringer. So I would be paid uh, like a retainer, you know, sort of monthly, something monthly, which helped to cover the rent, and then paid per article also. Um, but at the time, I was so I, I became a stringer for for the Economist a long time ago. This was ni 1988, I think. Um, and I also worked for other newspapers at the same time, um, and made a quite a decent living actually as a, as a stringer. But the Economist was one of my very first strings, yeah. And so yeah, I, I was working, and occasionally I did travel and reporting for the Economist. I, I, I was in Iraq a couple of times. I was in Algeria, but I didn't actually get hired by The Economist as a proper staff person until uh, 10 years later. And, but your remit was Egypt and, and other places or just Egypt? When I was, when I was hired on staff, I'd, I'd been writing for The Economist for 10 years from the Middle East, from various places. And when I was brought on staff with The Economist in, in 1990, actually it was 2000, beginning of 2000, no, I became the, I was the, the Middle East uh, uh, bureau chief. So I, I covered the whole of the Middle East. I mean, it was not just Egypt. Right, uh, right. Egypt was just a small part. I was based in Cairo, but I actually covered 23 countries, I think, um, from Iran to Morocco. Right. And so I, I traveled a lot and I held that job for 15 years. Um, and that was during also a very tumultuous uh, period. And um, yeah, I traveled all over the region a, a lot. You know, I was on the road for you know, a week or two out of every month for 15 years. I'd like just to talk about your incredible book, which for me, I think I've read it maybe three or four times. Um, it's, it's really a very, very special uh, history of Cairo. Um, very entertaining. It's, it's, it almost reads like fiction. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's fun, it's light, it's informative, and yet it's very scholarly. Um, how did that come about for you? Was that just a natural progression for you, having lived here all your life? What what, what made you begin that project? Well, I think there there, there were two different things. Um, one is that I felt a kind of accumulated debt to Cairo. Um, you know, during the 1980s, I had a really fun time. I mean, I was, you know, I, I was uh, in and out of university, in and out of journalism. I was also did a lot of bad stuff. I smoked a lot of hashish. I spent a lot of time in Botnea, in the old city of Cairo. Uh, I went all over the country, uh, you know, I bounced around hitchhiking. I did, you know, all the kind of things one does, you know, 
Uh, and I really explored Cairo in a way that I think few other people have. I, I actually made a lot, made um, with a friend of mine, um, William Lister, we did a series of maps of the old city in Cairo that actually involved walking down every single street in every alley of uh, the old city. I felt like I actually knew Cairo extremely well. And then I'd studied the history. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I did get a degree in Islamic history. You know, also a sense of uh, a fondness of, for Cairo. Um, so that was one thing. But then, as often in life, there was also a kind of fate element to, to this. Because, in fact, um, uh, at the time that I wrote the book, I had moved to London with my wife, who's a doctor. She got a, uh, a uh, scholarship to do a master's degree in London. And we moved to London for a year. And in London, I had to, I wasn't allowed to, I didn't, at the time, I've now got a British passport. At the time, I did not have one. I had just an American passport. I wasn't allowed to really work uh, formally. And so I was looking for things to do. And um, I had an inspiration to just write this proposal for a book on Cairo. And um, uh, it was just an inspired proposal. It just sounded great. And um, so I sent it off to a bunch of uh, I got an agent, and the agent sent it to publishers, and I was surprised to find that there was actually a bidding war between publishers, and I, I got uh, a very nice advance to write the book. Um, so that gave me, when we returned to Cairo, it gave me uh, something to do. So um, it was kind of out of um, unemployment and, and desperation that I you know, thought of doing a book on Cairo. But it turned out to be very serendipitous in the end for you, didn't it? Yes, very much so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, no, and it was, it was actually very good because we subsequently spent, a, we, again, we moved again and we lived in Tunisia for a year. Um, and there also, I was very underemployed as a journalist. Not much happens in Tunisia, particularly then. Uh, it was under the sort of dictatorship of Ben Ali. Um, and uh, uh, as a journalist, there was very little that one either uh, uh, you know, could write about uh, or was, able, was allowed to write about, in fact. Um, so to have this book contract, I wrote most of the book on Cairo, actually in Tunisia when I, when I was there. Um, it was also good to have distance from the subject because um, as, as any you know, uh, nonfiction writer knows, uh, 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 the most tempting thing is to just keep stuffing your book with more stuff um, and finding more sources. It's a great, the greatest way to procrastinate. So when you're actually you know, a thousand miles away from your subject and with no access to a proper library or anything like that, then you just have to sit down and write the thing. So that was actually kind of useful. So it took a year to write the book um, and a lot of that was done in, in Tunisia. And this is, uh, I'm guessing this is pre, you know, being able to, you know, just do a Google search on whatever you needed. This is, you were using first-hand materials, you were going into the rare books library downtown. I mean, that sort of, that was your research base, I'm assuming. No, there, there was no Google then. There were various, there, certain, there were search engines, I think, had just appeared. But just to get on the internet, you had to this, you know, it was, it was a, had this sort of weird squealing sound yeah. and you'd do it through the phone line. The dial-in, and, uh, yeah. This, no, so as you say, I did, I did the actual kind of historical research before going to Tunisia, I'd done it in Cairo. Yeah. I'd spent a, a previous year largely in the, 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 the um, Rare Books Library. Um, yeah. And tell me what your reaction was when the book was published. Did you anticipate the reception it got or did it completely take you by surprise? It took me by surprise. Um, but I thought it was a good book. I, I thought it was good, um, but it got, a, it got wonderful reviews, uh, I have to say. Um, but it's kind of funny how these things work because it, it sort of comes in a, in a, in a snowball. Um, 
I think I was very lucky to get one good review. You know, the, the first one that came out was in the Financial Times, somebody who just particularly liked the book. Um, and because it got a really good review in, in the Weekend Financial Times, suddenly other journalists uh, picked it up and it got reviewed more widely. Um, it wasn't promoted very well by the publisher, by the way. Um, it just got picked up because of the reviews and it got you know, excellent reviews everywhere. So no, I was very chuffed by that. Um, uh, and you know, these things are sort of serendipitous. I mean, you know, uh, I was lucky to fill a gap that people wanted at the time. Sometimes authors have bad luck in crazy ways. I mean, you know, it's something that seems to happen quite often is that two or three books about the same subject all come out at once, you know. And so none of them get the attention that they might merit. Um, but I was, I was uh, lucky with that book, and it, it, uh, it did uh, pretty well, yeah. So tell me a little bit about, so you carried on in Egypt, uh, and, and you moved into, you, you began working full-time with The Economist. The, I guess the next big thing in terms of, um, you know, professional pivot, if you like, would be the 2011 uh, revolution here. When my, after the, the, the year my book came out, Lots of things all happened at once. I, 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 my book came out uh, within a very short time. I had my first child, my only child, my daughter, uh, Laila. And uh, I got this job with The Economist. And I actually moved from downtown Cairo, which, where I'd been living for a long time, for 15 years, uh, moved to uh, Zamalek. So I suddenly became respectable in every way. <laughs> so respect, respectability, I had a full-time job yeah. with a pension and all that stuff all happened very suddenly. So, so you, so, became, you uh, became an it, adult, in other words. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got suddenly very grown up yeah. all at once. Uh, a big kick um, in the ass at the age of about 40. Yeah. <laughs> um, everything, everything all came together at once. Yeah. So um, yeah, the, the, that first decade was, was full of kind of discovery for me. Um, and in fact, I was almost ready to move on. I was thinking, you know, actually, I'd like to go and be a correspondent in some other place. Yeah. Maybe it's time to leave uh, Egypt. I was getting a bit tired of, 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 of Cairo, to tell the truth, yeah. um, in the late uh, 2000s, the late noughties. Um, and um, then, of course, the Arab Spring erupted. And had you anticipated that, Max? Because I know that, you know, having lived through that period myself here, um, you know, 2010 for me was a year of, you know, feeling that there was something coming up. I felt that there was there were rumblings. It was almost like, you know, the, the sort of those the tremors of an earthquake. I could feel that there was something happening. Did you get that yeah. sense? I'm sure you do. You're you're you're, you're you know, you're. Your ear was much more to the ground, probably, than mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I wrote this cover story, July 2010. Yeah. Um, you know, saying that, you know, we were reaching some kind of, you know, endgame with uh, the Mubarak regime um, and that, you know, the, the new generation wasn't, toler wasn't going to tolerate the same old mm, nonsense mm. again. So, yeah, we, we actually, uh, um, I, I think I was one of the... Uh, Few people who actually stated that yeah. that, that, that something was going to happen, and and, and as, but as you say, I wasn't the only person who thought so. Uh, um, you know, and as you say, the mood in Cairo in 2010 was was kind of ripe for a change. Uh, nobody could have anticipated what happened in January 2011, um, but definitely there was a kind of sense of being completely mm. fed up with the way things things were. 
going back to yourself, I get the feeling from having spoken with you with you before that you had a sort of a burnout by then. You'd had sort of you needed some some distance. No, I was I was in I was in I was in Egypt uh, through the whole uh, Arab Spring. I, I didn't yeah. actually leave Egypt until 2016. In fact, the thing is that uh, I. I, as the bureau chief for the Middle East, I didn't just cover the Arab Spring in in Egypt. I covered it in every country. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I covered from Bahrain to uh, Yemen, Syria. It was, um, you know, it was, it was an amazing story, but it was also kind of grim. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially, especially after 2013, 14, 15, when all of these kind of hopeful uprisings just you know, were crushed or fizzled out or it was just very demoralizing because there were in all of these countries, I met wonderful people, you know, uh, uh, very idealistic, very enthusiastic. Um, and to just see all those hopes kind of dashed was, was, was really kind of uh, crushing. Uh, so yeah, that was, a, that was a difficult. I'd like to just sort of close up, Max, um, and and just get a sense from you. Is do you do you feel you have another book in you? Is there is there something else you want to write about? Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a matter of having the time. I mean, this is one of the one of the troubles with being a, a you know bureau chief first first for Middle East. Now I'm bureau chief for South Asia. Is that there's it's very difficult to find time to to do um, you know books that are. Uh, you know, that actually demand big chunks of time, um, like sort of big chunks of, of, of uh, research, for example. I just don't have the time to do it. Um, I did actually write a book during the, the lockdown, uh, but it was a completely different kind of book. It was a kind of racy thriller um, that I, it was just a great pleasure to write. It's complete fantasy. It's off the top of the head. Um, but I just filled in the mornings of, of being locked down with, with, with writing that. That sounds fun. That's a nice little sideline and, and sort of keeping your, creative, your creativity going there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but as for a sort of big nonfiction project like my Cairo book, uh, yes, I'd like to. But it's a matter of finding the time to do it. Um, I've been in India now for five years. Um, when I first came to India, I swore that I wouldn't be like a lot of other Western correspondents in India who all have to write their, their India book after five years in, in India. Um, but I fear that I might break my own promise to myself and, and end up writing a book about India. Do you not want to go back and look at the Arab Spring from the point of view of, of distance now that you're out of it? And you've, you, as you said, you covered the entire region. Or are you, are you very turned off all that? It's it's it has uh, a lot of scars actually you know and uh, I wouldn't want to touch it for the time being. I'm sure I will I will always go back to Egypt. I own property in Egypt. Many of my best friends are in Egypt. Uh, many of my best memories are in Egypt. Uh, Egypt has the best beaches in the world. <laughs> it does. Uh, yes, I miss, it does. I miss uh, Aish Beledi and uh, uh, you know a, a lot of other things. Yeah. Uh, and um, Egypt also has. Don't tell the Indians, but Egypt has better mangoes than India. Um, <laughs> we'll keep that to ourselves. Uh, I'm not sure if I, I'm ready to write a sort of political-ish right. book about Egypt at this stage. Yeah, no. yeah. Well, Max, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, I'm delighted you were able to be with me. And um, I would just love it to, you know, if you could come back on the show maybe in a few seasons' time and we can catch up and see what you're up to. Super, I'd be delighted to, Malak. And good luck with the show. Thank uh, you. It's been a pleasure talking Thank to you. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for listening today. This episode of What I Did Next was brought to you by ANT Media with me, Malak Fuad, and co-produced by Shirag Desai. Please remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook for updates on the show. Just search for What I Did Next. Our next episode will be in two weeks' time, and we hope you can join us then.